Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can submit questions, uh, become a producer of the show that determines the direction we run into. Typically, our second hour is something that we focus on. Um, on Saturdays, it's our education focus hour. So we're happy to have uh, Georgia Dow here to talk about student anxiety. So feel free to put in your questions, producers, to talk about that in our second hour. In the meantime, we're going to focus on media and virtual event questions, and feel free to take advantage of the vast knowledge and experience of our panel today, including some uh, general education questions in our first hour. All right, TJ, let's see what we have. Thank you, Josh. Hello, everybody. Uh, first question is from me today. Uh, T.J. Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota asks, the RIAA reported vinyl album sales increased for the 16th year in a row and that for the first time since 1987, vinyl albums outsold CDs. What are these kids thinking? Don't they know digital sounds better? Discuss and get off my lawn. That's very well read, T.J. It's almost as though you were able to channel, you know, that, that reader's uh, uh, views. Go ahead, Nigel. Well, so first of all, I suspect it is not kids that are buying all these discs, as we used to say in the old world. It is probably people uh, older than that rediscovering their music. And there is a huge trend at the moment in, uh, and not people uh, of a younger age, but people more of middle and upper ages, like maybe where I am, going back to their music and re-listening to it, the stuff that really was the the outline of our lives, but on better sources. I think two things sort of happen technically. Um, one or maybe two or three things. Obviously, the the ability to produce digital files is very impressive. Then the arrival of smart speakers, uh, which provided sound easier, and then the subscription services. But none of those things deliver the emotional impact of good sound delivered through good speakers. And I spent my week with one of the top architectural speakers manufacturers in the in the world. And, and I can tell you when we do a demonstration for a client of sound coming out a, you know, a small uh, a smart speaker and then a, move the sound to maybe two larger speakers in the roof and then move it to six to eight well-placed architectural speech, uh, uh, speakers in a room properly balanced, the emotional impact is huge. And I think one of the things you're finding people who are, are getting access to this technology are getting access to that. The other thing I would tell you is if you have a favorite album, probably something from the 70s or 80s, even before that, and you could find a really good turntable and a really good set of speakers, you've probably got a local hi-fi place that may have that, you will hear things you have never heard before. Courtney, physical or emotional? Um, I think there's a couple of problems here. One is... Uh, in the statistic, um, you know, for, I can't understand it. We're, we're, you know, on the verge of a political discussion here, a religious discussion here of analog versus digital. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you think of digital streaming and, uh, uh, MP3s and even CDs, um, you know, you have none of the rumble, the record noise, the dirt, the convenience, the inconvenience of having to store your records, pull them out, flip them over every 15 minutes to play the other side. Uh, if you want to play a playlist, you got to get a changer that's going to change them and it's not going to play the songs in the order you want. So the inconvenience of vinyl, the poorer sound of vinyl, uh, none of this makes sense to me. 
But I think what's deceiving in this statistic is that uh, it says that um, vinyl albums outsold CDs. And that's not a uh, thing of vinyl albums increasing so much they've surpassed everything else. It's that CDs have decreased because of the convenience of streaming and MP3 players and being able to have you know, uh, an entire library of you know, 5,000 songs on your phone um, has, out, has made CDs obsolete. So the better quality or the digital quality is going to go for the more modern streaming or convenience of the streamer or the phone or the MP3. Whereas the people that just want a, uh, a trip back in time, you know, or want to have collectibles, uh, they'll buy the vinyl albums so that they can collect them and keep them on their shelf and look at the album liners and the notes and things. It's not about the audio quality at all. And I think that's a myth, Nigel. <laughs> Oh, come on, Courtney. The Vitrolli tuning is just the fun of it. Uh, Georgia, did he leave you anything? Yeah, I, I agree with both Nigel and Courtney. Um, and also, I but I do see a lot of my young clients that are buying albums, that it's in to be retro, that they want something that they can collect, that they can hold, that they can show other people and have be in awe. And they don't really care about the audio quality. If they did, they'd be on Spotify. They would be dealing with other things. And they love that idea of going down to be able to find them. It's kind of like Pokemon for them to get this album to be able to play it for others and also for people that are enjoying it it's also that nostalgia effect that's a wonderful drug to our brain to be able to go back in time to be able to relive what it was like to find an album to put it on to see the needle go on and to be able to let it play so i think that both are an effect for why people that want to collect something are going to choose to collect albums jeffrey yeah, and the smell—that's the—that's uh, the big one. It, you just pick up an album, and you can smell. He had that extra sense right there, uh, Nigel. I, I do have to dispute one thing that you said, and that is uh, those of us who were part of the vinyl area era most likely do still have our vinyl. In fact, this is the one thing. Uh, about a year or two ago, a, somebody here passed, and they what they did was they took their vinyl collection and they gave it to one of the. Uh, local, uh, this, uh, I think it's called a Grace. Uh, it's basically a resale store. So they had a big sale and just everybody just completely converged on that sale to find not only the, uh, the albums that actually probably were more than $2.49, which I don't think that they were in there, but also those albums that you just cannot find anywhere else. If you do find an electronic version of it, it's basically been bootlegged and still is coming from the vinyl anyway. So you hear the pops and the hisses or somebody trying to digitally take out the pops and the hisses, which if you've ever heard an album that or a song that's been like that, you kind of notice that this came from a vinyl album. So having that original vinyl is uh, very important. There's a lot of feel, there's a lot of textural, there's a lot of uh, people that take albums and they, they throw away the album, I don't know why, but then they plaster the, the, uh, the artwork up on their wall and then they can have something completely unique. So there's, there's a ton of reasons why. And then of course, what Courtney said in that is that uh, CDs are not very special. So, you know, if you get an electronic, uh, electronic version of a song, why not get the uh, why not get the flak version uh, on your computer rather than having a physical CD? Well, TJ, we're back to you. What do you think about our panel's contributions? Well, I am one of those nerds who's always been chasing the ultimate sound, and while 
I'm not sure if this is going to come through here, but this is my Sticks Paradise Theater album, and it is laser etched on the back side. Um, it's not coming through very good, um, and but I'm you know I'm the guy who's getting the half speed masters and the thicker vinyl and whatnot all the time. I've got a nice Techniques linear tracking turntable that I've had for thirty some odd years, and yet when CDs came around. I made the jump and I've never gone back. Um, I'm always looking for, you know, just the, the best sound reproduction, the best sound quality. And I don't miss having to use the D4 disc washer system to clean, try to get all the stuff off the album and, you know, the, the pops and clicks. Um, yes, it is nice to hold the album art in your hand, you know, from a nice big album. And, and that is something I have noticed when I've been, um, you know, with CDs, it's like, okay, you get that little, you know, five inch by five inch thing. And it's just the album art doesn't seem to be there. So I can, I can see it from that standpoint, but from the sound, I just don't get it. Courtney round two. Yeah. I failed to mention the fact that I have you all beat because over my shoulder there is an Edison new Londoner from 1924 player diamond disc player. And I have a collection of Edison diamond discs. But I don't sit around cranking it up and playing it all day because the quality is not that good, although it is a bit nostalgic. Is that underneath the Emmy? <laughs> yes, and there are, there are no electronics. <laughs> it's 100% analog. No electronics ever touch it. It's all acoustic. Nigel? I just want my right to reply. Um, I would tell you there is nothing emotional about perfect digital music. I think it's sterile. I think it's wallpaper. I think it's like putting on the television and walking away from the room. What I would suggest people do if they ever really want to try this, look up in your local area who the Sonus Faber, Bowles and Wilkins, Paradigm, or one of those speaker manufacturers, find somebody who, who sells those products in your area. Talk to them very nicely and ask them to play you your favorite piece of music through one of those speakers. I can tell you, I have listened to Bohemian Rhapsody on a $150,000 set of speakers with Macintosh amps. It doesn't sound like anything you're going to get from a streaming service. There's emotion and there's non-emotion. You know, um, since the panel's discussion has kind of got me thinking that um, a reprint of album art may be the most efficient to purchase with a piece of vinyl uh, in it. Uh, you know, we typically in this show tend to use real backgrounds instead of virtual backgrounds. And so having them up on your wall, um, you know, uh, is something that can make a nice decoration. I wonder how many people have bought them and have never, it's never touched a stylus. All right, that was fun. Let's go to our next question. Nigel DeSalle from Austin, Texas is up next. Nigel says, Jeffrey, you were in San Jose last week learning about CXL. What is that? Jeffrey, oh, thank you, and that great question is it's a uh, it it's it was a it was a great yeah I, I survived through the uh, through the San Francisco storm of uh, 2023 by the way, uh, but uh, it was a very interesting time. I go uh, a thing called Tech Field Day where we talk about enterprise technology and a lot of uh, cool stuff. In this one, it was called Tech uh, Tech Field Day 27. Um, and we learned about CXL, which is basically Compute Express Link. It was a standard that was developed by Intel, uh, started in 2019. And, but this, this is to round up the last of the great re of the resources to use it in a more robust version, and that's memory. So uh, if you have uh, an, a 
motherboard, uh, whether it's Intel, whether AMD, you're usually you can you can expand your uh, storage, you can expand uh, some sometimes the processor, but memory was always this and couldn't be more. So if you were trying to do something like a virtual machine or, or multiple virtual machines, you had to you had that one big stumbling block and that was the maximum amount of memory. The new, the CXL uh, consortium, which was what was formed in 2019, decided that we need to have shared memory. So what they what they did was they, they, they decided, well, we've got to utilize PCIe. And of course, PCIe is going to be uh, expanding. We'll have P we have PCIe 4.0. PCIe 5.0, and then upcoming PCIe 6.0. This is where memory comes in. They got, uh, I'm going to show you this really quick. Uh, da, 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 close that out. But basically, they got, uh, I saw little devices like this. This is the Aurora A1000, which is an add-on card that you would put into a PCIe slot, and it could expand your memory uh, in, into ways that you need to. Uh, the first version, they have a, P, a CXL 1.0 version, uh, then, then a 2.0 version and 3.0 version. Uh, 3.0 hasn't been implemented yet. It's expected to once PCIe 6.0 really comes out, it will, uh, it'll expand that out and then we'll be able to utilize that. Right now, they think a lot of enterprise, uh, the, the uh, server would be able to expand their memory so they could add more, ver uh, VMs to it so they could re, address the memory because there's a lot of memory that doesn't get utilized when you're uh, when you're running the PC. So this will actually allow you to say this gets this amount of memory, this gets this amount of memory and just kind of pool it all or put it all together in one big pool. Um, but by its uh, 3.0, the memory will also be able to uh, manage VRAM, which means that you know, maybe a vMix machine or anything maybe you're running a couple virtual machines on top of your on top of your vmix machine all of that can be handled in one computer and with the memory with the storage with with everything um so by one the 1.0 spec is uh, 32 uh, giga transfers per second which is about uh, 3.93 gigabytes per second in a X1, but X16, you can throw at about 63 gigabytes per second. When it gets to, when we start using 3.0, you'll be able to transfer up to 121 gigabytes per second. So once again, that means that we'll be able to do a lot of things, whether it be video stuff, whether it be audio stuff, you'll be able to put in as many plugins as you want into a computer uh, because it will now handle this. And of course, it all depends on the processor. That's why, that's what this spec specifies specifications all about. So they're adding new uh, new uh, programming to the uh, to, uh, future processors, which will allow you to utilize this memory in many ways, shapes, or forms. So like I said, it's, per, it's great for the enterprise, but even for us, even for the, uh, the warriors that don't have servers and just have uh, desktops that are, that's running a lot of stuff that a network admin or a, a storage admin would run, we'd be able to uh, utilize all of this, which is great. Fantastic. Thank you, Jeffrey. TJ, let's go to our next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California is up next. Gordon says, I want to add an SDI tester to the kit. What is a low-cost way of assuring that 100-foot SDI cables from rental houses can handle 3G SDI signals? And he has a link to a pattern generator. Go ahead, John. 
My bird's yelling, so Courtney's got to take this one. I was trying to find something. Sorry. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, I'm trying to think what it is, the tester, the uh, MD Cross from um, um, Red Byte Systems Decimator uh, has a good test generator and it has all, all sorts of test signals up to three gigahertz, but not 12 gigahertz. So I'm, I'm still at a loss. You can use just a regular digital oscilloscope that can handle up to 12 gigahertz and pump a test signal through it and look at it on the, on the oscilloscope for your square waves or if it's rolling off or impedance mismatch or loss. But it's not quite that easy because uh, um, uh, signal integrity depends on a couple of things. It depends on the, the length of the cable, the cable's impedance, the connector's impedance, and the uh, quality of the amplification and the the input on the other side. So it depends on what you're plugging it into, whether it can handle those lower signals. They'll work. Some things will handle uh, a degraded signal pretty easily. Some things will not. You'll get sparkles. So, uh, you know, bring the equipment that you're going to use, plug the cables in, and see if you've got clean video on the other side. That's the easiest way to test that you know it's going to test. That way you know it's going to work with your source and your destination through that specific cable. The no-look pass. Well well played, uh, sir. Uh, TJ? I had a question for Courtney. Does where you are running your cables affect the signal integrity as well if you you know if you're running it in a bundle or something along like that yeah there's there's not very much uh, problem with uh, uh you know crosstalk between cables if you're running it through a uh, you know a power station where there's high voltage uh high power stuff floating through the air, EMI, electromagnetic interference, it can reduce the uh, signal to noise. But in digital cables, uh, you're not looking at an analog signal, so it's uh, pretty robust as far as those bits are either on or off. And uh, superimposed EMI is not going to be too bad unless you're in a high-power situation. The crosstalk between digital cables is probably not a problem. All right. Well done, team. Let's go to our next question. Simon Norum Hufsey from Tromsø, Norway wants to know, as a young AV tech, what are your best suggestions to learn new things as fast as possible? I watch a lot of YouTube, I pay attention in office hours, and I work as an AV tech. A lot of us weighed on this one. We'll start with Nigel and then go to John. Yeah, volunteer, practice, play, make mistakes. I mean, this is uh, a thing that we all learn by doing. Uh, there's academically only so much you can do. I mean, I love YouTube for learning about things, but then I do them. And don't don't short path your way through things. Go the long way around. One of the things that in modern technologies, you can buy software and solutions that cut out 10 steps. Networking is a good example. But you know what? Knowing those 10 steps, going the long way around will help and teach you a lot. But volunteer, find a local church, a local synagogue, a local temple. Find somebody who needs help and you'll learn a lot just by being part of the team. John Snyder. Yeah, I would say uh, all humans have uh, several different evidence-based practices that can improve their learning 
processes. And, and the biggest one Nigel's referring to is called intentional practice. Like have an idea of what you want to do specifically and design a plan to practice that skill. It starts with having what's called a cognitive schema or understanding the new skill you want to learn. And you can learn that part faster that the head part of learning can happen faster if you can connect new information to old information. So how is this new thing you're learning like something you already know? And making those connections allows you to build up your cognition faster. And then you need to move that into long-term memory. So you need to use something called spaced repetition, which is the act of um, repeating yourself over a long period of time. If you try to just jam and cram like for an exam, you'll learn it for four or eight hours. That's not going to retain in your mind. So you actually want to space out your learning process to make sure you're re reinforcing the learning you've had. So have a plan to take two or three weeks where you learn new items and you review the old items that you've been trying to learn. And then lastly, confidence-based assessment is you need some way to evaluate that the learning's taken place. And for that, you want to set yourself up with some sort of quiz or coaching structure where you can practice the skill and then have someone else review it objectively to see how well you're performing that skill. Go ahead, Georgia. You want to remember that um, in order to learn, you need to have the space in your brain to learn that information. So actually sleeping the night before you're planning to learn new information helps because that's the time when our brain consolidates memories that we want to keep and kind of gets rid of memories that we don't need information that's not necessary it gets rid of so one is it starts off with the brain being kind of really ready and primed to learn there's space for that and then you can actually make your brain stickier by some really simple tips and techniques one would be exercise exercise actually gets us ready to learn new environments and new information faster so that makes our brain a little bit stickier and that means that we'll retain the information for longer and more effortlessly and then remember that not only is it important to be able to do it but know that Neurons are blind. They're like two little tiny blind guys. They're trying to reach out and touch each other, but don't be overstressed or upset with yourself if learning doesn't happen right away, right? Neurons that wire together are going to fire together and fire together are going to wire together. But sometimes they're just reaching out and they're not reaching each other because they can't see where they're going. So also know that sometimes you need to give yourself some space, take a break from something if you feel frustrated and allow yourself to come back to be able to learn it later. And it will happen. Sometimes you need to just give it some time. Dave Trotman. Well, to add to that, uh, setting yourself up for learning is actually the right thing to do. And I learned from a geophysicist, a world-class guy from Soviet Union, who told me that he sets aside 5% of his time to learn something new. And he does that on a weekly basis, which would mean maybe a Friday afternoon. And because he sets aside the time in his schedule and makes sure he does it every week, he became, within two years, the top geophysicist in the world. Now, I'm not going to suggest you can become the top hockey player in, you know, a few weeks, but you have to practice, like Nigel has said, and you have to make sure this sticks, like uh, Georgia and the rest have been saying. And I said, uh, I'll try that for a while. And sure enough, I was able to learn a lot of things just by setting aside 5% of my time each week to go after it. Go ahead, Jeffrey. 
Neurons that wire together fire together. I love that. That's 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 an awesome saying right there. Uh, I'm going to add to it. Uh, you, you see it all the time. You do talk about YouTube. The one thing that uh, I do as an as an influencer, reporter, whatever you want to call me, is I'm always reading. And uh, you know, like for instance, this event that we went to, uh, I had no idea what CXL was before uh, the before I had to come you know, go to San Jose and sit around a round table and learn about it. And then still, there's still a lot of little nuances that I don't know. So it's about rinsing and repeating at that point. So uh, my suggestion is, yeah, you start reporting on this. Get uh, get onto a blog and start talking about these uh, about these AV uh, whatever. You know, if you're on the audio side, if you're on the video side, start talking. Uh, find something to really latch onto, and then expand from there. And then you're going to find that as you're reporting it, you'll be asked to go on to a podcast and explain it. So that you're going to have to rehash that and explain that a little bit better. And as you're going, it's just completely imprinting into your head. And then every now and then, there's a company that comes along and says, hey, we like your work. Why don't you come and sign this NDA? And then you're going to find out about this technology before it comes out. And then all of a sudden, you're pre-bleeding edge of the technology and you have a good working knowledge of things. You know, I get this all the time when a new version of some software comes out. I've already taken a look at it and I've already uh, assessed to what the strengths and weaknesses are on that and where I can uh, use it from there. So uh, that would probably be my suggestion is just to, to start writing and writing and writing on it so you can uh, so you can be ready when it comes out and uh, and be on the forefront. Dr. Clark? One of the best ways to learn something with deeper understanding is to prepare and teach it to someone else. And Jeffrey implied this uh, in one of his several suggestions. Um, the act of preparing to teach something that you think you sort of understand to someone else requires that you uh, reframe what it is you're teaching about in language that you're pretty sure your audience will understand. So you're taking their background knowledge into account. You're um, discovering uh, ways in which you thought you understood it, but you were giving yourself the benefit of the doubt that you can't get away with when you have a live audience who's reacting with a puzzled look or, or with a, a nod of the head and satisfaction. So prepare to teach to somebody else and you'll learn it twice. I love those suggestions. Anywhere from the technical from John to the practical to Georgia and Jeffrey. Um, I will say that um, it's often been stated on this program that um, practice doesn't make perfect. It makes permanent. Um, make sure you're learning the right thing. Uh, the hardest way to learn something is to try to relearn something. And if you think it's hard to learn something the first time, just try unlearning skills. It can be tough. Um, that's the reason why I don't play guitar today. But um, yeah, and another thing, I don't know why it tends to be the case, but um, when I try to teach people things that involve motor skills, like uh, skating or snowboarding, I always tell them after their first lesson, like the next time you pick this up, you know, you're going to be like 50% better after that. And it usually is true. I don't know what it is, but I think people's brain somehow uh, figures out the lesson. Uh, so sometimes I think it was touched on uh, by our panel though, you know, having too long of learning sessions might not be the best, the best. So that's fantastic. And I will say that um, Clive Klitsch 
uh, Klitschner from our chat says the fastest way home is sometimes the longest way around. So I can feel that. And I believe Guy Cochran's found an Etsy shirt about the neurons firing together, wired together. So check our chat out for that. All right, TJ, let's go to our next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida wants to know our thoughts on this new companion type app. And he has a link to it. Jeffrey? Yeah, it's called ATM, and uh, I've been I've been looking at that since I saw the link. It's it's pretty interesting. It's an overlay for OBS, so if you're using OBS, this is perfect for that. They do have a free download for you to start creating TikToks through OBS. I've been doing that through Wirecast when they introduced a, a vertical video, which is great, and so you can at least get your 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 shorts or your TikToks ready for uh, for production out of there and not have to worry about overlays like lower thirds and things like that. As for the service itself, uh, works with OBS uh, Streamlabs, uh, yeah, Streamlabs desktop. It's, uh, it, it, if, if it went to other services, I'd be a little bit more excited about this because I don't, I use OBS, but I don't use OBS. I always use it sparingly because you never know if somebody's going to come up with a new version and it's just you know a bunch of chefs putting food into a pot sometimes the uh, stew is going to taste great sometimes it's not so much and i know i just uh, dealt with somebody that had uh, apparently there's a problem with ndi ptz cameras running on obs that uh that it causes uh, um, there's like a memory leak or something like that causes the whole thing to crash so uh, use it. I'd use it sparingly. It's great for anybody that's doing a Twitch channel that wants to just uh, have like little whiz bang things that's passing back and forth, up and down. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't probably heavily rely on something like this personally. Thanks for that information, Jeffrey. So it might get you right that this is not something you can use in a, a browser plugin, but instead a plugin directly for OBS and YouTube, etc. Are you asking me that question? Yes, I, I believe so, yes. Okay, fantastic. Let's go to our next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada is up next. John says, how do you keep track of your education support materials, lesson plans, visual aids, research insights, etc.? Aaron? Basically, because my whole school system is Google-based, Google Drive is my best friend. I have organized it to a point where it is organized by standard, by visual or um, worksheet or slide or just activity that we're going to do in general. So that way, whenever I need something, I just type in equivalent fraction game and 17 things pop up for me. So that's absolutely key. The other thing I've been doing more recently is keeping my lesson plans in Google Slides instead of doing it on a specific website, because if I can't get onto that website on my iPad or something like that, it's not going to work out in case one of the computers goes down, which it can happen. So the more um, cloud-based materials that I'm able to use, the better, because then I can print it out from anywhere if I needed to for a substitute or something like that. And I'm able to share the research or the anchor charts or the lesson plans that I'm using to other teachers. And it makes it a lot easier when it's all organized. John? So, uh, Aaron, are you um, like tagging information when you put it in Google Drive or are you just trusting the search to pull up what you need? 
I'm naming it to the point where I totally understand what it is so that I'm not trying to figure out what it could be. Because I found out about two years ago um, during the pandemic when I was looking for things to send to my students that I had a lot of things just called untitled. (laughs) So I took the longest time to name everything. And then on my Google Drive main page, I actually have a folder that says to be sorted. So anything that is ambiguous, I throw it in there. And then when I have 10 minutes on a Sunday night or a Monday morning, I'll try to update it and then move it to the right section in the drive. Interesting. Um, Yeah, to answer the question on my part, uh, we are at at my office. We had a trainer leave about four months ago and I asked her to put together all of her training schedules uh, before she left. And she left us something. And what we're finding three months later is that she was not comprehensive on, on on everything and so there's files missing there's you know powerpoints or tip sheets or assessments and, and we just can't find them we don't have a map of the whole territory and in our office where we have onboarding plans for six different departments and just general onboarding as well and, and that's just part of what we have to keep track of some of the stuff's in uh, powerpoint some of it's in uh, word documents and outlines some of it's in e-learning modules stored on the cloud some e-learning modules stored locally and we just don't have a single comprehensive map uh, what i use for office hours i use a spreadsheet basically it's called a learning object metadata list which has a row for every item or tip sheet with metadata like, is this a support item? Is this a discussion? Is, where's the link to the YouTube video? Where's the link to the picture or the research? And that helps. And I'm not sure if I want to try to implement that for our whole department or not. So I was just wondering other people's suggestions. Dave? You know, this is a problem even outside education. Um, I'm part of a community organization, and there are five or six people on the board, and then there's like 32 volunteers, and then there's 300 people who are part of the organization. So having everyone understand that everything they're making is actually not their property, and it's the community group's property, and they have to be almost disciplined by me. Uh, I have to yell at them a lot to make sure that what you made as a poster, uh, a letter to the city, uh, some other thing, or a a list of things that happened at your last meeting, uh, make sure they're all on the drive for the organization because your house might burn down and all that paperwork will disappear. So I've had to discipline people over and over again not to leave it on their computer, but to park it in the shared drive that we got from Google for free because we're a nonprofit. And they had a long time before they began to understand that what they're doing is on behalf of other people and they can't just keep this stuff to themselves. Now, I sympathize totally with John's situation because I've had to take over somebody else's duties and found that their sorting system and their filing system was in their head. And I come from a guy whose father kept a very messy desk, but could always find something at a moment's notice. He knew exactly where under that pile what he was looking for was. But his filing system was all up here. And now we have filing systems that are spread out across many devices in many locations and many cloud services. And consolidating and cross-referencing, tagging, all that is modern practice. That's just what you have to do to be a professional these days. Now, if your file system is uh, job security, uh, in case you're a deployment, you might want to help your coworkers out. That's what I'm getting from that. Let's go to our next question. Andre Dole from Berlin asks, 
I want to understand how to set up my edge router properly for production. Can you recommend sources to learn networking basics and advanced configuration? Nigel, can we help him out? I'm sure uh, people will give you better ones than these. I will tell you I did the Ordinate uh, Dante classes, the level one and level two, and well, you may not be doing Dante, some of the networking uh, education in that is really good. And Mickey made a point uh, early on about stuff you find on YouTube. Um, it's not always 100% right, um, so be careful of what you're doing. But I found the Ordinate stuff pretty good basic stuff. Jeffrey? And it also depends on what you're where you're planning for this. Like, for instance, if you're doing something that uh, that is at home where you have a very solid network, you know exactly what's going on, then uh, something like that, then being able to uh, tie that down is one thing. But if you're using this for your travel, like, for instance, this guy right here, the GLI net, which I've talked about multiple times, allows me to connect up to hotel Wi-Fi and then, uh, and then distribute my own network within their network. Uh, so that would be a different type of configuration that you might want to look at because you're going to be doing a lot of testing before you even plug this guy in if you want to find out what because you don't want to use everything uh, in some cases because it, you might find that it will cause your network to slow down too much for the production end of things. But uh, um, yeah, I totally agree on the on YouTube that uh, I'm trying to remember the one web page I had it in my head and now it's completely gone. Don't you love it when that happens? So uh, there, there's there's a couple websites out there that I wholeheartedly uh, uh, follow for stuff like this, and I'll get you those links in a little bit. Next question. Mike Beardmore from Reading UK wants to know, any news worth spreading from South by Southwest? Dave? Well, I get all my news from Discord here in office hours because they have a whole section there on South by Southwest. And they're also including press releases, uh, lists of uh, presenters, uh, ways you can get a free pass, all kinds of stuff is in there. So I think, um, Mike, give it a try if you're not in Discord and looking at it now. Go into the office hours Discord, look up South by Southwest and see what they've got there. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas wants to know, any suggestions for a 12-volt power supply that has zero noise and supports a 100-watt transceiver? The one I have now has too much fan noise. Courtney? Well, it's kind of quite a problem these days. The, the one that I have for my mobile transceivers is an Astron uh, 35 amp, but it has a about a 40-pound transformer inside of it, and it is not a switching power supply. Almost all the modern ones are switching power supplies and will have fans in them. Otherwise, they can blow up uh, and overheat. So um, look for an Astron-used 35-amp uh, power supply uh, on eBay, and I think you can find a few of them over there. And that will probably work for you, and it has uh, zero noise. An adjustable output between, I think, 10 and... 25 volts, something like that. Fantastic. TJ, mind, mind reading the questions for that next fellow? Yeah, I'm not sure who we can trust this guy, but Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA says, what are the effects of sports and sports programs for students on education broadly? How might these activities affect teachers and students uniquely from other extracurricular programs? Start off with Dr. Clark. Sports programs as extracurricular activities can have a very good effect on not only the athletes involved directly, but 
the coaches and the student body uh, more generally, or it can also be uh, essentially a clique or a, an activity, a set of activities that compete with what some would say the, the main mission of schooling is, which is education that is usually thought of as more limited to the cognitive domain. So it, it can be one or the other, and, and sometimes both in a large school. Uh, generally speaking, though, I, I think the reputation of uh, sports as extracurricular activities is a positive one um, for the student body. Generally, it can can bring the student body together, uh, rooting for their their team to win. I think it goes back to uh, much more primitive times when uh, the warriors were the athletes and uh, the warriors were defending your tribe or your community and uh, maybe also bringing in the uh, bringing in the meat as hunters as well as uh, warriors when necessary. I'll stop there. Different scoring systems back then. Go ahead, Georgia. Yes, I agree. I think that it can be really wonderful. I think that especially for people's self-esteem, if they're not as academically strong or um, they don't feel like they belong in dealing with different things or they have learning disabilities, this could be the area that they're able to shine at. I think that it's really important to kind of maintain also a balance between doing extracurricular activities and being able to go through your academic work and being able to support that. Sometimes we can feel so absorbed by something that we enjoy and that we feel good at that we don't spend the time to be able to build up the skills in areas that we might be weaker at. And so I I think that it's a delicate balance, but I think that it's a really wonderful one. And I think that schools that have strong sports programs also have many more diverse kids that are good at many different things. And I think that that's really important. Plus, I think that for teachers and teachers that are also coaches, it's nice because they get to see each other in different areas and with diff wearing different hats. Though I do believe that people should be paid for their extracurricular time because I think that that's also really important. And I think that that, you know, you show what you appreciate by giving money to that and being able to make sure that it's really appreciated the time that we spend to doing extracurricular activities with these students that you're working with. Aaron? So I'll agree completely with what Dr. Clark and what Georgia have said. Uh, the only thing that I have to think about, though, sometimes is, especially in high school and college, thinking about how teachers are sometimes put on the spot to change a grade or inflate a grade for a student who might be the quarterback or might be the star on the hockey team. And that's where it gets a little fuzzy for me. I'm all about school morale. I'm all about boosting self-esteem for students. And not everyone is going to be, you know, following like the most intellectual paths. They might be doing things that are far more advanced than what I can even do. But thinking about it in the terms of sports and movement and things like that. It's great for students and teachers to be a part of that. I've been a part of so many staff basketball games being five feet tall. I know I'm not going to get many baskets, but I know there are people that are 
way smarter than me that can figure out different plays to get you the championship. My only, the asterisk I throw in there though, is that schools shouldn't pressure teachers to change grades based on academic performance just because they're on a sports team. And this question from all angles. Love it. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I asked my personal robot librarian uh, to find me some academic articles about this, and it seems to say that sports does improve academic success. Uh, this is coming from ChatGBT, uh, but it does have mixed results on social standings. And I think my experience with students uh, and working directly with students is they also need a support system in place. And it's really easy for the importance of sports to become too high a priority in the family life. And so I'd encourage parents to encourage your kids to be athletes and recognize they're not very likely to become professional athletes. Appreciate all of the, uh, all of the feedback, I guess, um, you know, if anyone wants to weigh in, I'm curious as to the focus on an education program. Um, it seems like a lot of attention sometimes is placed on like the, the, um, uh, this, the athletes are going to go professional or the focus on that as opposed to more the, uh, the benefits of the, of the community. Um, maybe some way that these programs are implemented may indicate, you know, that they, um, they seem to be uh, oblivious to the fact of the percentage of, of uh, athletes that wind up actually going into, uh, other professional colleagues. So, uh, sure. Uh, Dave like to weigh in. Well, um, sometimes uh, a student is choosing a post-secondary school because of its sports program. Uh, they want to succeed. In, in our city, we have a university that churns out high draft pick hockey players. That is, they play here under a coach who was legendary, and then they get a better chance at getting into the NHL. So I, I'm just speaking on that narrow column of that particular approach. And I know there are colleges in the U.S. and in the U.K. Uh, where you go because they have a great program for that particular sport, and they graduate a lot of people who succeed and become professionals. As to the junior high and high school levels, well, yes, you have to meet the expectations and and temper those expectations to what this could turn into or not be. I am a terrible basketball player. And in high school, they saw me, the six foot one skinny kid, and thought, ah, we'll turn him into a basketball player. After the first practice, the coach walked over to me and said, you clearly don't understand how this game is played. You can go to the showers. Thank you very much for trying. <laughs> Good, Eric. That, that was great, Dave. I have a very similar story about running track and my father watching from the parking lot so he couldn't see quite who was running. And he told me in the car later on, like, oh, I feel so bad for that poor girl that was at the end and nowhere near all the other kids. And I just stayed quiet. And he looks over at me after a beat and says, oh, pumpkin. <laughs> so totally get that. Um, but Josh, to kind of tie in, your question, and then actually our second hour, um, is the concept of student anxiety. So regardless of what age you are, thinking about it either in terms of academics or about sports, you don't want to place so much anxiety and so much pressure on someone that they're doing this, number one, for other reasons, whether for a family member to support them or purely to get into a college or a secondary program. Um, I just feel like it puts way too much pressure on kids 
and just makes their entire life focused around it. And then if something goes wrong, like they break an arm, they break a leg, they're out for the season. That was their whole thing. That was their whole personality. They were the hockey star. They were the basketball star. So like I think you said, there has to be a really good balance of you don't have to be the top athlete or the star student, but you should have enough balance with both. Maybe we could ask ChatGPT what the quotient is when it stops being fun for the uh, participants, but really appreciate that uh, that uh, panel for your discussions. And if you'd like to submit your questions and definitely vote on them, we're just entering the final portion of our first hour before we move into our education, please do so, especially if we don't get to all the questions, make sure you vote up the ones that you want us to cover. TJ, let's go to our next question. Michael Pateria from Poland asks, Question about Facebook. I have a post with a paid promotion, and if I want to share it, the photo from the post doesn't appear. When I turn off the paid promotion of this post, everything works perfectly. Can you help me with this? Hmm. Well, Michael, outside of um, paying for the promotion, I'm not sure I can offer you much uh, usage. A lot of us use uh, browser extensions that will eliminate even seeing this uh, uh, opportunity. If there is an alternative to that, that might be something that's helpful and something you might be alerted to if you have that type of filtering going on. Let's go to our next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is up next. Where are some good resources to get personal online help with Windows upgrading from Windows 10 Pro to Windows 11 Pro? Jeffrey? It depends on whether you want to get a free uh, free answers or if you want to actually pay for it. You know, you can always come into after hours, and if uh, somebody like myself who's who's done a lot of uh, upgrades and a lot of Windows installs uh, there to uh, help you out, then then that that's great. Tom's uh, hardware guide is a great place to go to. I always find if you go to the forums, there's a lot of people that are willing to give you answers, but they all have their own different experiences. So you might start doing one thing from one person, and then somebody else will come by and say, no, no, that's not the way to do it. You got to do it this way. And then you get pulled in so many directions, it's crazy. And then you got to start from the, from, from the beginning. I highly recommend by doing a 10 to 11 conversion is just basically save everything that you've got on Windows 10 and upgrade, just clean upgrade to Windows 11. There's a lot of a uh, lot of cool little features in Apple machines and in uh, Windows machines. That basically, when you start the procedure, uh, it there's a it can pull from different types of uh, cloud type situations where it can put the programs back onto your desktop without you having to do too much work. Courtney? Yeah, the difficulty in your question is there is the online help. Uh, you live in a, in, in a college town there, and I think if you uh, look for some help, there'd be some students there that'd be willing to help you out uh, with uh, in-person session or maybe over the line. The problem with uh, trying to do a Zoom session on upgrading between the two is if you're going to be upgrading the computer you're using for the Zoom session, you can't do that because it has to go through the upgrade. Um, Microsoft has a good help and support system on upgrading to Windows 11. Um, once you get past all the ads uh, for Microsoft 365, you just click on the uh, Windows 11 there. You can get uh, getting ready for Windows 11 upgrade, how to upgrade FAQs. Uh, there's a lot of stuff online at Microsoft's support site on that transition from Windows 10 to Windows 11. So take a look there. And if you're still confused or have trouble about that, look on Therat.com. He's got uh, um, you know 
Paul Thrott has a lot of information on Windows 10, Windows 11, and hey, Windows 12 is coming out next year, so you may just hang on and go from 10 to 12. There's not that much difference between 10 and 11 other than moving stuff around and making it more confusing. So wait for 12. John Preto. Oh, there's a great new resource to upgrade from Windows 10. It's called OS X Ventura. Get rid of that window. <laughs> All right, let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Nigel, you mentioned the experience of listening to music through really good speakers. Would a pair of HomePods be a solid introduction to that world for those that can't afford higher-end speakers? I'm heavily invested in the Apple ecosystem. Nigel, care to weigh in? Yeah, it's probably a great way to, to listen to stuff. I mean, I, I didn't suggest everyone go out and buy $150,000 speakers. I said, if you ever get the chance to listen to music through them, you will find it's a very different experience. But some of this will also depend on what you're listening to and how it was generated and what the source of that content is. Um, in With audio files, we tend to find they drop into two different categories. There are people who want preference and people who want reference. And the reference people are trying to listen to the recording as they think it was recorded. So they're trying to listen to it the way that it was mixed or it was made. Whereas the preference people want a certain uh, sound, a certain type of sound, a certain quality of sound, high, low, whatever it is. So you sort of have to depend uh, where you're coming from on exactly what you're looking for. TJ? I love Nigel's description there of the preference versus reference. I'm probably a bit more on the reference end of that, I would guess, just based on his descriptions. Um, the, I like the HomePods that I have. I think they sound really nice. They have remarkable bass for something that is so tiny. Um, it's If you have the Apple ecosystem and you want to have a decent sounding speaker, it's not a bad way to go. Keep in mind for that same amount of money, you can get some decent bookshelf speakers like Elax or something like that and a reasonably priced, nice stereo um, receiver. So you don't have to necessarily jump in and then you can plug that into other systems. Yeah, I'm going to um, agree with what's been stated. I think physics helps with this. Oftentimes the high expense of some speakers are the ability to make them compact, you know, be able to fit those great speakers inside your laptop. Uh, it's amazing what they're able to do considering the space cons uh, constraints. But I think... Um, TJ's suggestion about the book speakers really comes through here in that uh, just physics is going to be on the side of maybe a cheaper but bulkier set. Um, Nigel? Yeah, quick quick addition. It's not only the speakers, it's what's driving the amplifier. And, and the Apple stuff also tends to have a lot of electronics in it. And I don't know what those electronics are doing to the sound. And that's producing a preference rather than a reference. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael says, you two will be starting a residency at the MSG sphere with a Dutch fill-in drummer, Bram Vandenberg, while Larry Mullen Jr. recovers from back surgery. How would they find him at short notice, and how would he learn the songs quickly? Dave? Um, in the uh, music community, people know each other, and they know other people who know other people. So it's really not that hard to find a drummer who's really good and available, and could maybe pick up all your songs rather quickly. So I know in my uh, area with this community here where I live, uh, it's easy to say, oh yeah, no, John can do that. And then they hire him to replace for six months or so if they've got a tour booked as you two have. Um, 
You'd be surprised, actually, if you've ever seen people in a studio. You'd be surprised at how they can play other people's stuff. Uh, many people have learned the guitar playing other people's stuff, and then they get to play their own stuff eventually and become you know, the famous musician that they are. But they've all tried other people's stuff. And you two have been around long enough that a, a whole lot of drummers can do the same thing uh, and pick it up rather quickly. And they know the song. So it isn't like they've never heard it before. And you'd be surprised also if they've never even heard the song, drummers can actually pick it up from what listening to it once or twice. They can pick it up and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see what he's doing there. Now, there are some drummers whose style is so unique that it's really hard for them to do it, but most drummers can put in the effort and pick it up in no time. Jeffrey? It's basically fundamentals. Uh, for a drummer, it's rudiments. For a guitarist, it's scales. For a keyboardist, it's scales. Uh, if you are if you are a... If that is your focus in playing drums and playing guitar, playing whatever, then you, uh, you're just doing that every single day and you're doing it without... Uh, without question. Uh, the big story, I've talked about this a few times, uh, guitarist Randy Rhodes from uh, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, he basically, every, every town that he went to, he'd find a, a music teacher. It didn't matter what the level of the music teacher was, he would always get a lesson from that, uh, that person, because he never knew what he was going to find from there. But uh, the other thing, as Dave Troutman uh, said, these musicians drummers are always playing at i know i've got a list of songs on my uh, on my drum set that i play on a regular basis new song comes in i hear something different it's like wait a minute well how how am i going to fix that how's this going to what am i going to do how, how does this work um there are some aids out there like for instance uh, uh there's a website called drumeo which is out there and uh they they have not only transcriptions but they usually have the drummer that's uh, that that performed on the song talking about how they did it. I just watched Steve Smith uh, talk about how he wanted to have more of a melodic drums in the song separate ways. So he showed everybody how to do that. But then I just watched a whole bunch of YouTubes after that to see how other drummers do that and then kind of play with that idea. So when I go to play separate ways that I can either bring in what Steve Smith brought in or bring in what all what my own idea into the uh, end of the song but still have the basic idea on that and that's that's what this guy is, is doing he's probably worked with them if you go to vegas you see this all the time you'll see a musicians uh, consorting with other musicians of uh, on their songs and uh possibly even going to like nashville perfect example where a lot of these uh, musicians get together and they do jam sessions and just kind of uh, work with each other back and forth Dave? I don't know if Douglas has seen this, but on YouTube, there's been a challenge match between Dave Grohl and a 12-year-old girl in the UK who can drum just as well as he can. And he was totally shocked when he first saw her drumming. And now they've met each other and she's become famous. But it is just practice and skill and knowing what you do with a set of drums. I've seen that. TJ? And if you get an opportunity, there's a documentary about the Wrecking Crew that talks about these uh, studio professional musicians from the late 60s and 70s. And you would be just amazed at how amazing they all really were. I'm really glad you mentioned that. They, that is a great documentary, yes. It reveals so much about the skill sets. Yeah. And our final first hour question. 
Well, Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is in. Real good reviews, movies, and TV and tells you where to watch them. Uh, subscriptions like Netflix or Prime to freebies like Crackle and uh, Tubi TV to every place like FX and ABC and Fox to rentals like iTunes and Amazon and Vudu. Is it the best entertainment guide? Go ahead, Dave. We're back to that best question again. Uh, my usual answer for the best is the one you like is the best. The speaker you like is the best. The radio you like is the best. The car you like must be the best. It's the one you like. However, when I need to know something about streaming and video and uh, movies or TV shows, I go to justwatch.com and I can put in the name of what I'm thinking of and it'll tell me where to find it, how much it'll cost and what format it'll be in and which streaming service is carrying it. Some of the more popular, of course, you get a long list. Other ones that are obscure, you can find maybe it's only on the Criterion feed. Uh, it doesn't really do broadcast, so your ABC, CBS, and all that uh, aren't going to be listed. But for all things streaming, justwatch.com is a great resource. And they've just introduced the Discovery button, which is that they've collated for you some of the most popular stuff in streaming and where to find it. And then there's links to IMDb and other sources for reviews. So in terms of the best, my, my like is uh, justwatch.com, uh, but real good reviews, uh, I'll have a peek. And Courtney? I only had just a minute to look at real good reviews. The one I've been using for years and, and seems to be the de facto standard uh, these days is Rotten Tomatoes. And they have a great uh, interface, and you, you can sort them by movies, TV shows. They have news and showtimes. So you can find out where these movies are playing locally. Uh, and their rating system is an aggregate rating system. So they have a collection of critics who all uh, rate these movies. And they have their tomato meter here, which shows you as uh, 0 to 100% uh, on what's good. And, you know, if you find something that uh, nobody liked, Chris Rock's Selective Outrage, 48%. But uh, you can go on there and see what the critics are saying uh, in aggregate about uh, all the movies that are out. It also has links to the schedule, where they're showing, how you can rent them, where you can download them. And also I find that um, if you have Amazon Prime and you have Prime Video, that's another good place because you can search there and it'll show you things that are available for sale, for rent, and on other streaming services as well as YouTube TV has a very good interface for finding stuff, even though it may not be on YouTube TV. Well, thank you, panel. And thank you, producers, for our first hour. Uh, we're going to move next into our second hour of production. Before we do, um, just a note that uh, our, our next week's schedule, we'll have an interview with Alan Hawks. On Monday, if you'd like to learn a little more about him, look at the email. Also, recording podcasts will be a focus, as well as frame rates, and a special on BitFocus Companion. There is an error in email, so I have seen it. So feel free, feel free to check out all of the valid uh, uh, representations of what, we're, uh, what we have slated next week. And now we'll go into our education hour. Dave? Thank you, Josh. For all the folks who are watching Education Hour, we would like you to uh, maybe throw a question in after you've had a chance to hear from our guest and um, bring those things to us, uh, vote on them, and we'll take them up as we go along here. But today we're talking a little bit about 
both student and teacher anxiety, anxiety in general in people's lives. And uh, we brought with us someone uh, which I've been very excited to include in our shows these days, uh, Georgia Dow. Georgia Dow is a psychotherapist with considerable knowledge and experience on how technology is always changing the way we think about the world around us. She's also enthusiastic about VR gaming, so she'll take questions on that, uh, is a regular contributor to This Week in Tech on the Twit Network, and is not someone you want to wrestle with. Uh, today, she's here to help us understand issues with uh, student mental health. Welcome to our little discussion group. Uh, maybe we could start with just how you got involved in psychotherapy, because you started as a teacher. Is that right? Yeah, I started off as a teacher um, and I loved it, but I didn't really care about the curriculum. I was mainly focused on wanting my students to feel better and to be happier. And when I was reflecting on that, I felt that probably it's a little important to care about the curriculum if you're a teacher. So I decided to go back to school to be able to um, be a therapist so that I could work on the things that really um, I felt kind of sang to my heart better and that I would enjoy more doing, though I really did love teaching also. And it was um, a really wonderful um, and at times exhaustive job. In terms of the the problem of anxiety is it is it a societal problem is it a, just a unique thing to certain regions of the world um, and and I guess for me the question would be is is there a, an impact on students from the overwhelming um, world that they are in outside of school that they're having to deal with so many things today that many of us gray hairs uh, didn't have to deal with in the old days? That's a huge question. So I'll try not to, to take up the entire hour answering that. But um, anxiety is normal and natural for us. It's a protective measure. And um, when you look at our brain, our brain has not evolved very much in the last 50,000, some people say 100,000 years. And so because of that, we have this caveman kind of brain, cave person brain, in a very modern society. And so its answer to most of the world's difficulties were to go into fight or flight. And that usually worked out, right? If there's an invading tribe, fight or flight is beneficial, um, food shortage, have to go get uh, you know, look for new ways of dealing with keeping your home safe, um, dealing with differences in the hierarchy of the tribe. These are all things that going through a fight and flight would be beneficial. And so this is a primitive mechanism that we have that when activated strong enough actually will um, chemically numb the working memory. And so it is beneficial for us in many different situations. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. we've gotten rid of most of the lions, tigers, bears, invading tribes in most parts of the world where um, at least the, the, the first world areas. And so there isn't as much need for it. So now our anxiety system can be more of a detriment if activated enough where it becomes kind of a generalized anxiety than it is to be a benefit. And so it is an important thing to understand where it is beneficial and that it is normal and healthy. If you are dealing with anxiety, there's nothing wrong with you. And anxiety can be beneficial as long as it is in the same alignment as the danger that you are dealing with. When you would want to get treatment for that or deal with it in a different way, 
um, might be when is usually when it kind of affects your day-to-day life. You're no longer enjoying things. It's taking up more space. And the anxiety is higher than the dangers that you are dealing with. And so that's where I would come in. Or again, there's different ways that you can manage it. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's different parts of the world where people exhibit more anxiety. And that's usually where it was more of a benefit. And so the people that had a higher anxiety level were better to survive. So if you're dealing with anxiety, the, the good answer is that like, your it was adaptive and so it was a benefit but it may not no longer be a benefit or as adaptive and so you'll want to kind of practice techniques to be able to bring it into alignment with the dangers we're that often you're dealing with. encountering messages that tell us this is extremely important and you should pay attention or uh, this is uh, this is going to change your life or you should be really worried about this so things like this will cause cancer or that the this city is dangerous or whatever and these are out of proportion to your actual access to that, that you're, it's being mediated to you rather than a direct experience. Do you think there's a way, uh, a strategy for evaluating the val- uh, your connection to the level of concern? I would say that it's, it's difficult sometimes because when you're a limbic, more primitive part of your brain. They used to call it the lizard part, but it's just your anxiety system. It's your protection system. When it fires, the more that you do something, whatever you're doing at any moment during your day, you're getting better at it. So a lot of times we've been activating our anxiety system. And so because you're activating, it's getting stronger. And that's good. It's learning, but sometimes it's learning so much that it's always on. If you activate your anxiety system all the time, it doesn't go through this, you know, ebbs and flows of your anxious, you're feeling calm. It can become generalized anxiety where your brain starts to spin, you get cycling thoughts, and you would recognize that you can't calm down, that even when, or especially when there's times of no danger, you feel activated. You feel, oh, I have to keep my guard up. If I let it down, dangerous things or something bad is going to happen. And so often I say that a good way to be able to find out is one is how often are you anxious? How many bad things have happened to you? And to be able to journal that out. It's a little bit easier to journal it and look at it more reflectively because journaling is a cognitive activity instead of just an emotional activity. But it isn't always easy because you're the one that's inside of the fishbowl. And so sometimes what you see as danger isn't what what other people see as danger. And that's difficult to reflect back to you. So Mm -hmm. not always that easy to recognize it when you're the one dealing with it. I think Josh is anxious to get in on this. So let's let him have a word. I am. Um, Georgia, as you mentioned, um, dealing with anxiety, I suppose, as you mentioned, it is a somewhat natural process, uh, the anxiety. So being able to harness um, anxiety for, let's say, um, uh, before uh, uh, you know a performance where you might be a little anxious, what might be the principles of when we might want to either harness or suppress anxiety? What are the cues there? It's a wonderful question. And anxiety can be beneficial in a lot of different situations. You actually want to feel a little bit anxious. If you are about to do a sports, you know, a sport, if you're about to do a presentation, if you're about to do 
um, a test, you can use a little bit of anxiety is good. Being too calm can actually be a detriment. So you want to gauge your level of anxiety depending on what you're doing. You'll see fighters actually want to hep themselves up. Anxiety makes you stronger. It makes your brain think faster. It makes you be able to react quicker, um, but it's not more cognitive. So if you're going to be doing a presentation, you want to ramp down your anxiety, which you may choose to do through breathing techniques, refocusing, working on your inner dialogue with yourself. What are you saying to yourself? Make sure that you're enjoying it instead of just feeling nervous. And if you're going to do something that's more active or that you're going to have to be um, running or fighting, battling, dealing with something, you may actually want to rev yourself up a little bit. And I usually say you want to kind of be in that zone where you're able to give your best to what you're dealing with. So you might actually want to activate it by jumping up and down and fighters will kind of smack themselves in the face and, and, you know, kind of rev up their anxiety levels so that they're really able to give the best to that. And so you want to be able to use your anxiety as a tool, which can be protective and beneficial. If you're, you know, having a cars coming at you, you want your anxiety system to do what your anxiety system does best. You don't want to think, oh, I'll think about it later and let's deal with it after. It is there to keep us safe. But during a test or during a oral presentation where you have to remember a lot of things cognitively. I think that many of us have had that situation where they're so nervous that it suddenly just wipes out all of our working memory. And we're like, I have no clue what I was about to say. And that can also be really nerve wracking. And so depending on the situation, it's a tool that you'll want to use and keep kind of into the zone that you want to. I know when I get behind the wheel of the car, I have to do a whole calm down thing because I can drive better if I'm not anxious. And I have to, I actually had to train myself to do this, to, to just stop and say, okay, now I'm driving. I'm not thinking about a report that I have to write or some other thing that's coming later today or, you know, moving my dentist. I, I should be focused on driving and that's what I'm doing. And perhaps students aren't given the kind of training they need to be able to stay focused on things and not worry about that other stuff while in a learning mode. Is that, is that a factor you think? I, I love, I love that thought because um, I think that it's, it's a tool, like it's a tool. These are skills that we need to learn that we're not teaching children and teaching them very young, like in elementary school, how to deal with your anxiety. What is anxiety? Um, how do you express anxiety? Everyone expresses it differently. It may not be the same. And if you, if we had learned this so much earlier um, and it was taught to us as a class or in part of our health. And some schools do implement this, you know, go through breathing techniques, go through how to be able to understand it, make it more adaptive, how to maybe harness your anxiety instead of it being a fear, to, but to make it into something that's joyous or excitatory instead of detrimental to us. It would be so much easier for us to be able to go through day-to-day -day life because these are skills that you're going to go through and use all through your life. This doesn't end when you're done learning. We can have anxiety over so many different things in so many different situations that some basic tips and techniques, they don't, they're not even things that you need to learn, can really change the manner in which you express it. And then how do you think about yourself and that self-reflection? And how do you deal with things when you feel anxiety or fear or worry? That makes a huge difference also to our own self-esteem and identity. There used to be a program, and it may still be running in our curriculum, for, it was called CALM, C-A-L-M, and it was career and life management. 
and it was ostensibly to help people understand how to do budgeting and live life outside school and that when they graduate they should be able to live in an apartment or whatever and do their own stuff but it also included some of this anti-anxiety kind of training um i'm going to give chris a chance to get in on this so he doesn't get too anxious i'm very calm just appropriately calm i've, I've heard the expression used uh, self-regulation and I wonder if uh, our guest could say a little bit more about um, what that is and how it, it might bear on the topic of today. Go ahead. So I deal with a lot of people and it, it, it really also depends on like some people are really good at emotionally regulating. That's keeping yourself kind of emotionally where you feel not being overly reactive and not being kind of to non-reactive to things, which could also end up being avoidance, which is also not healthy. And there's some people that are more um, reactive to things. And when they feel something, they feel it more deeper. So kind of those, so those us that are more empathic or super feelers or lean more towards ADHD, it might be more difficult to learn how to emotionally regulate, learn how to deal with your feelings and your emotions and how you express that. But not just the expression of it, which is what often in a school system, they work on the expression of anxiety. But I have people that are really good at looking like they wear a perfect mask that everything is calm on the outside, but it's like the duck, right? The little feet are going like so quickly underneath, but no one can tell. And emotional regulation is actually dealing also with how you feel on the inside. And that work is what is less often taught in schools because if those students kind of fall through the cracks. They look like everything is good. And often they lean more towards having social anxiety or worry about how other people will see them. And so because of that, they don't want to take off that mask. And so they don't let anyone know. And so I work a lot on trying to help people with that um, internal emotional regulation so that the outside and the inside are closer to each other. We all somewhat wear a mask, which is completely fine and adaptive to society. But how do you feel on the inside? And what do you do with those emotions, especially if they're strong? And a lot of that deals with our the way that we discuss what we think of in our head. What is that kind of um, parental part of our brain saying about our own behavior and how we cope with that? And if you're a very kind person to yourself, or are you really hard on yourself when you make a mistake? A lot of people say it's like, I'm being honest, but usually it's just kind of cruel and mean. And if you wouldn't say it to someone else, you probably shouldn't be saying it to you either. Thanks for that. We encourage our producers, of course, to contribute questions to not only our guests, but to other panelists as well. And uh, some of them have been accumulating here, so we're going to move to it and let John give us the first question. The first question is from I, myself, in Reno, Nevada. What are your thoughts on the rise of social media and corresponding rise in student anxiety or depression? You knew this question was coming, right? So you did a lot of background work on this and you checked it out. So let's let's hear from you on that. Was that addressed to me? Uh, let's start with Chris. Yes. I was <laughs> hoping Georgia would start us, but that's okay. Oh, I'm she sorry. Can I can you. yield to Georgia. Sorry, I was just looking at the numbers, so <laughs> I didn't want to jump ahead of a queue. <laughs> Um, I, I find that that's probably one of the um, largest things that affects my client base. Um, it's a hard thing. You see other people that are, 
they they spend a lot of time on social media. They spend a lot of time on looking at what other people are doing. And we reflect back, especially when our brains are kind of in that teen year where our identity is very um, ephemeral. We're not really sure of who we are on looking at what other people are doing. And because social media is often not honest, I'm not going to say, you know, the internet is a lie, but often we're not showing on, on social media, those times that are tough. They really believe that they're not doing enough, that they're not good enough, that they don't look good enough. And it can affect so like self-esteem in a really negative way. Plus because of it's this off and on kind of addictive switch of, you know, you consume it and it's made to become more and more addictive, especially TikTok, where it's, it's actually tracking how, how quickly you scroll, how long you're spending on something and feeding you things. It also causes this immediacy where we are not learning the skills of being able to delay gratification and to be able to wait on things and our ability to deal with difficulties becomes weaker because you're not practicing it. And so I would say that Though they may not tell their parents, but for especially teens and young adults, they would say that they're addicted to social media and it's really, really hard to get rid of. I would say that it is easier for me to help people with drinking and smoking than it is to deal with their addictions to social media. And most of my young um, clients would say that they are addicted to social media. So we'll go back to Chris and see. Chris? Thank you. Um I'm senior enough to remember that um, the equivalent of social media in my uh, high school and pre-high school years was uh, pinball machines. That was that took the rap for being the uh, the corrupter of youth. And if you've ever seen the Music Man, the answer is the the problem in in that town was uh, attributed to pool and pool halls. There's a great song about that. Um, so I, I think there's there's always going to be a, um, a a social practice or a technology that uh, to which older generations attribute the anxiety or corruption of youth, um, but it changes with um, as technology changes and. Um, and it, it's it's a version of addiction, as uh, Georgia said, um, but um, each has its own characteristics. There's always going to be um, a target. It's going to be different in a generation from now, I imagine. We don't know what it's going to be. Uh, and then each generation, both of young people and of of the adults who are trying to be helpful or trying to change the subject, um, needs to figure out while in the moving vehicle um, how to uh, put some boundaries on or uh, guide ra- guardrails on this uh, system that uh, tends to produce these addictive and uh, anxious uh, symptoms in in young people who are at a stage of life when they're in doubt about their identity or uh, how they fit into their social milieu. So it's, it's a problem for sure. And yet it's a, it's once we solve it in quotes, um, a new, a new source of uh, our anxiety will arise, no doubt. Thanks. We'll go to Aaron. 
So if I take Chris's analogy of the pool hall and the pinball machines and things like that, the theme that I'm noticing is when young adults and kids are able to go to the pool tables and go to the pinball machines and now go to social media, they're doing it typically without an adult supervision. So usually when kids are in front of adults, being a third grade teacher, it's infamous for me that they're super kind in front of me and they help each other. And then at recess, when maybe teachers are swapping places and going to their lunch duty or starting to cover recess duty, all of a sudden that's when kids get pushed down. That's when something mean is said. So knowing that social media and the pool halls of yore um, were typically with no adult supervision, more kids are able to express themselves how they would like to. On social media, it's almost this concept that because you're not in front of me, I can say whatever I want. And you're using the keyboard to say something, maybe that's not super kind, excuse me, not super kind. Um, And it's just causing so much anxiety in students to know that Now, not only are kids able to say maybe something mean or nasty in the hall, or maybe after school at the local burger joint or something like that, now they're able to do it online where other people who weren't there can see. So now there's more people that are a part of this situation. So that's just amping up the anxiety across the board. Because like Georgia, you said, nobody is showing the tough times. They're showing the best plate of food that they've ever seen. They're showing themselves in the best dress and on their fantastic vacation. They're not Mm -hmm. taking pictures of the fact that their luggage got lost at the airport. Mm -hmm. So it's tough sometimes, especially for students whose prefrontal cortex hasn't been completely formed yet to think about the fact that they are just showing the best of themselves, not day-to-day and how they want to be like them. That's going to cause anxiety for anyone, but especially people under the age of 18. I'm going to give uh, Georgia a moment to respond. I I completely agree. It's, it's a really, it's a really difficult thing. And I think that the difference between, you know, the pool halls and social media is that we can edit it. It's not even real anymore, right? Like everything is photoshopped and filtered. And so I have so many people, the levels of, you know, eating disorders and people that have negative self-esteem just kind of grows because this is now, you know, so much further from what is reality and we're bombarded by it. Like we, we feed on it, right? You go to the pool halls, you still have to deal with disagreements and people that don't like you and you're learning these social skills and you're, you know, looking people in the face and having to discuss things and figure out what they're going through. But now we're also missing out on certain amount of those social cues that we um, don't, like, if you don't practice them, you don't learn them. And so when you're dealing with something, an interface that isn't giving you feedback, you're not getting as good at that. Things that we learned passively, we now have to teach people a little bit more actively. And so it's interesting because um, as Chris was talking about, every generation has different issues, but different issues bring up different situations of strengths in learning and weaknesses in learning because of those situations. And so 
we have to adapt so quickly to new sets of rules and at what ages should social media be given to children and what ages probably should we try to wait with it and what are the pros and cons to each of those situations so they're not that easy to even discuss and kind of figure out how do we deal with that as parents and educators and um, young adults john yeah, I'm curious, Georgia, have you ever seen um, any research that indicates that the actual incidents of anxiety are higher versus just reported incidents? You know, when I was a kid, we just covered it up. <laughs> and I don't know if it's any more common now or if it's actually just people are willing to talk about it. We don't know. We actually don't know. I, I think that people look towards mental health so much differently than than they used to. It's something that they understand the importance of, and so they discuss it. And so we're not really sure. Is it just that people talk about it more? Because I think that in a lot of ways, we are parenting in different ways than we used to, which causes, again, some, some good and some, everything's balanced, right? Helicopter parenting and being hovering over your children can actually cause anxiety and being too much of the, you know, go play in the, um, you know, spare the the rod, spoil the child, or go play in traffic can be also cause anxiety. There's that healthy balance in between. So I, I think that a lot of it is that people will talk about it more and will discuss it because, you know, what is bullying today versus what is bullying from, you know, 40 years ago is completely different. <laughs> and we kind of like, that was just the way that it happened. And so I, I think that a lot of it actually is that we look towards mental health differently and people are sharing their emotions and their emotions are no longer weaknesses that we understand that that's something that we need to deal with. So that would be my bias, that that's most of it. But I think that um, there are definitely some different things that kids are going through that we didn't have to go through before social media was a um, thing. We're going to share now with Harshid what he thinks of this. Well, <clears throat> I wanted to ask Lee, actually to, to go to that previous question uh, when we were discussing. Would you feel that anxiety has uh, sort of a frequency or hold on us, um, especially with the new generation of children? Um, we, we talk about social media, we talk about these different um, situations that we could be put into, and then, you know, the good and bad. Is there probably lesser uh, teachings of what is good and bad, perhaps? So to blame the pool hall to be a you know, something that was a bad factor to get society to behave a certain way. Will we say that the frequency, we've turned up the volume so loud that maybe the message isn't going to our children or even our adults, um, even to our uh, seniors that, you know, they have to now keep up with social media and security um, and it becomes this anxiety-ridden thing. So do you think that the frequency level has also been turned up? Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful um, question that um, and statement on it, because these are just tools that we use and the way that we use them and the way that we discuss it and our own personality types, they're tools that can be used for good and for bad. And anything that you use that, you know, how do you know if something is at an addictive level, right, that you can't stop it that it's happening at a greater frequency than what you would want it to become. And it starts to take up your life and it's starting to um, 
lead into taking territory from other activities that you need to get done. Um, I would also add that it would also be that it starts to change or negatively detriment to the way that you feel about yourself or the way that you think about things. I think that those are kind of those little bit of tests that we can do to be able to ask ourselves, how is this really affecting us? And is it something that we should monitor and deal with? And so I always ask people when they say that I have to do something, I ask, you know, do you want to do it or do you have to do it? Because anything you have to do for me is like a little, little bit of like a red flag of like, uh-oh, let's see. And then I'll always ask, well, let's see if this is something that you can actually change. So even something that could be healthy, like exercise, if someone says I have to do 30 laps in a pool, I'll always be like, do you have to do 30 laps or do you want to do 30 laps? And they'll often be like, no, I, I have to do 30 laps. And I'll be like, I don't like that. Like, I don't like anything that controls us, right? I want you to be in control, not your anxiety to be in control or a um, rigid set of rules. Anything that's too rigid is also a little bit of a red flag to me. So I'll be like, but can you try to do like 29 laps or like 31 laps and see, see if you can do that or not? Because if not, it's, it's a rigidity that shows that we might want to be able to deal with this in a different way. Let's go to our next question, John. Our next question is from Mike Beardmore in Reading, UK. There are moves to remove homework for primary and maybe secondary students due to the stress-induced. Some parents feel it's a good discipline to gain at an early age. i got to warn everybody, this is a subject that comes up quite a bit on our show. So uh, I'll start with uh, Georgia and then go to Aaron. So I'll give my personal opinion to this. Um, I, I think that um, homework is, is overdone, and I, I really do think that it, it takes up a lot of time. Um, it, children are, are already in school for seven plus hours plus travel time. It's a lot of their day. When we think about that, they should be sleeping from eight to 10, um, depending on their age and developmental levels. Um, that's a lot of their day to be able to have to go home and do work. And it seems like in a lot of school systems, it's kind of growing. Um, I think that if they, they should try to, and if we take a look at the data, yes, you know, Finland and Japan, South Korea, a lot of some of the most successful school systems do not have homework or have minimal amounts of homework. And so I think that homework should be just next. I think that for parents, they're already overloaded. Often when there's a lot of homework, it's the parents doing the homework, not the children. So the parents are getting smarter and better at organization and the kids aren't. Mm -hmm. They don't often have the time to be able to take a look and monitor what their children are doing. And so it becomes this stress that is I think unnecessary and not beneficial. I think that it's important to learn how to study and how to organize and how to um, deal with your work. But I think that that should kind of happen within the school system. I think that there should be a time during their day in school hours where they're actually going through organizational skills, how to do homework, how to deal with that. And that should be a class. I think that that is more important than actually even putting information into your brain, but how do we do it? And how do we do that effectively? I think that we need to be taught that. I don't think that that, for some kids, it happens naturally, that they are well organized and deal with it. But if they're more leaning towards ADHD, like I am, it was a mess. It was just something that I need someone to have an oversight to be able to help me with. And my parents didn't really care or have the time. They were very loving. They didn't really have the time to be able to manage and give me the schools and tips and techniques. So for me, I'm, uh, you know, no, no to little homework to be able to do at home. I think that kids should come home and be able to relax, 
do other things, do sports, be able to deal with that. And so that is my feelings as um, dealing with homework. Aaron. Yeah. Aaron. So Georgia, I have the same experiences having ADHD myself. It was always, did I write the homework in the agenda book correctly? Did I bring home all the papers I needed? Did I get the books that I needed? Oh, you didn't? Let's call a friend and see if we can go get the book. And it was so much. So for my students, um, I tend to give them very little homework and it's all videos and a game to reinforce what they just learned about. Because when I give them the videos the night before, they will learn it in class again the next day and be able to use that information just to get some background knowledge so that they're not getting anxious about what they're going to learn about. They already know the night before that we're going to learn about adverbs on Monday. They know all about it. Um, and while adverbs aren't scary to kids, sometimes kids with anxiety will get nervous about what's coming next. So the whole concept of homework to me is just a lot of a time waster, especially if it's a lot of information. I remember doing like 37 problems a night in math. And it's like, if you can do 37, can't you do three and vice versa? If I can do three problems, can't I do 37? So the, the littler the homework, the better. And the more we have access for kids to do something with media, something they can watch on the way to soccer, something they can interact with and talk to their friends about through a game. I think that's the best way to give homework if you're going to at all. Dr. Clark. I agree with almost everything that Georgia and Aaron have said. Um, I, it occurred to me um, that um, homework for schools is a kind of addiction that um, that the adults and the organizers of schooling, at least in North America, have uh, come to take for granted that it's, it should be part of schooling. And, you know, when I was a boy, dot, 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 you fill in the blanks about the homework uh, being a necessary part of the experience of going to school. And I, I think we should treat homework as uh, recovery from an addiction and gradually uh, reduce it and increase the quality, but reduce the quantity so that our students are thinking about um, and consolidating what they've learned or experienced in school today and organizing themselves so that they'll be uh, a little bit more ready or less anxious, as Aaron pointed out, about what we're going to be doing tomorrow. Um, one, one nice way to uh, characterize that as homework is to say, your homework is going to be the same every evening. It's going to be to explain to someone in your home about something that you learned today and something that you're anticipating will be addressed tomorrow. That's it. That's your homework, is to consolidate what your experiences have been today and explain it to someone else and anticipate uh, what it is that uh, you're going to, you're getting yourself ready for tomorrow. I um, had that experience actually in my own home. I'm from seven children 
And my dad's practice was to ask us at dinner what we learned today. And we went around the table for it. And you had to be kind of ready for it. You came home thinking, okay, well, I better have something ready for supper because I'm going to ask about that. And it's a bit like Aaron. You know, they know tomorrow is going to be about something and they, and they get to it. Um, John? I know you have other opinions, <laughs> yeah, and I often, kind of support, we, we I support your other question. opinions quite often because my son went to a special school for until he was in grade three, and he his all the neighborhood kids he was with talked about this thing called homework, and he never got any. And it was a, an experimental school for teaching teachers new techniques. And then he got to regular school and was so excited because, first of all, he'll sit in a desk, and secondly, he'll get homework. So he was very enthusiastic. Like yeah. <laughs> no, I think oh, oftentimes we phrase the debate as too much homework versus no homework, rather than good homework versus bad homework. And homework can be a valuable tool to reinforce learning through spaced repetition, interleaving, and encouraging social interaction with homework. The problem is, it's easier to just assign 30 minutes for homework for each class. And so that's what most teachers do. Um, and maybe not most teachers, but bad teachers. And I, I agree with especially Aaron's approach to homework. I think, you know, small things to help reinforce that you can actually do the thing you learned earlier in the day is probably as effective as a lot of large amount of time. And Georgia, you get to come back to this one more time. Oh, yes, this is uh, I'm, I'll try to make it concise, but I, I loved what you said, Aaron, about the way that you do it, that you do it for priming and so that the children know what they're going to be doing the next day, because a lot of anxiety is about the unknown, right? What we don't know, what we can't control. And so going in, feeling like it's already primed, you have an area that's a little bit of knowledge where one is the cool part about priming, learning something before it's being taught to you, having a little bit, is that that part of your brain has a little area for other pieces to kind of grow on. It's like a puzzle. You do the outside, there's little parts to stick on because that's when we don't learn anything at all is when there's, it's so far outside of our range or like, I don't know any of it. It just kind of gets lost. And so that priming does a wonderful thing of being able to make it stickier, but making it fun also brings us more learning. We learn more when we're enjoying it because we don't have all of these avoidance pieces of this is negative emotion to me. And so making it fun, we learn better. We learn more effectively. And the best part is that then we enjoy learning, which is the coolest thing in the world to give to children as a tool or technique. And so I love that. And Chris, what you were saying about homework being like an addiction in schools, um, instead of what um, you were saying, John, as being a tool to be able to help kids, but to be something that teachers just do because they're taught that they should do that. I completely agree. And I love the wording of it being something that is like an addiction that teachers that don't give homework are often kind of besmirched by other teachers that they're not really doing their job and that they may not be as good of teachers because of that. So we also have this kind of a little bit of a cultural slight in certain parts of the world if they're not giving homework. And I completely agree, John, that priming is really important for kids and repetition is really important, especially for certain children. Like you have to kind of deal with kids depending on what they have and the class that you're teaching to it. I just would rather if it was happening during school times instead of being this huge overload because I agree we sometimes teachers just give it because they feel that that's what their school expects of them and so it's kind of hard sometimes to go against the grain. I'm very encouraged by all the questions we're getting so we're going to move through them here. John let's hear the next one. Uh, our next question is from James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Can you see telltale anxiety signs in third graders to intervene before issues in high school? We'll start with Aaron. 
What do you Absolutely. see? Absolutely. I see anxiety in my third graders around things like testing, things around social anxiety with issues out at recess. And usually if we don't put in those SEL lessons um, starting actually as early as kindergarten and continuing them, not just you know for the first five minutes of the day and then that's it, but coming back to emotional regulation and reminding students about how to be kind, how we, do we want others to be treated, if that isn't solved in the younger grades, that anxiety is just going to increase throughout high school because our brains are going to look for that negative bias that, you know, if in third grade somebody said, oh, you're really terrible at math, then every time that you're trying to do math from third grade on, if you don't get it right the first time, your brain's going to say, oh, there it is. That's the proof. And it, it won't be stopped. So if we show them, number one, that educators and teachers and parents make mistakes and we're able to move on from them and still learn and grow from that, then students will be able to see that we can make mistakes and not feel bad about it. And maybe that plus emotional regulation, understanding our emotions can help students not feel that anxiety so it doesn't go with them throughout their entire educational career. Pick it up there. I Georgia? I think that you can you can see anxiety from a really early age if you're paying attention to it. So I have some two to three year olds that are dealing with anxiety, even have panic attacks. Um, and I think that a lot of that is because we're noticing these these telltale signs to it. It can be that they could be aggressive. It could be that they're acting out, that they're trying to be funny. That's actually anxiety. Anxiety is very unpleasant inside of our body. And so sometimes we burn it off by, you know, it's fight or flight. And sometimes it's freeze. Sometimes it's faint. Um, but that can be using humor, trying to be, you know, a joke, trying to avoid and not be seen and kind of curl up into a ball so that we're not going to be the ones that are called on or trying to do everything perfectly because we're worried about social anxiety and we want to try to deal with what it is. It's sometimes the children that are doing everything right that are actually dealing with the most anxiety. And those are the kids that are usually the ones that we don't notice because they're always getting their homework in and they're dealing with everything. But, you know, if they're erasing something five times, that perfectionism is a huge feeder towards anxiety. That inner dialogue of this was horrible, or I bet that I'm going to do this so badly is another piece to anxiety. So a lot of times we look at the stereotypical fidgeting, moving a lot, um, having a lot of startle reflex as anxiety signs, um, not eating, um, eating too much, um, fidgeting. These can all be signs of anxiety. I fidgeted and I didn't have anxiety though. It was more burning off of excess energy. So it doesn't always necessarily mean that it is, but there's signs that you might want to look at. But I would say, take a look at the perfect student, the one that does everything exactly right. Their inner dialogue is probably that failure is not an option, that failure, if they do something wrong, that is the death of their ego. And so those are the students that you may not notice that you'll want to take a look at. I am forever thankful that my mother cured me of that because she once said to me, it's okay, Dave, it doesn't have to be perfect. And I was like, really? I'm allowed? And of course, learning from mistakes. Every time you make a mistake, it's a learning opportunity. And that is 
is more emphasized in my family than, than where I've seen elsewhere. Uh, let's go to the next question. Our next question is from Deborah Woodfork in Washington, D.C. I heard recently about Innerworld and Jewel's involvement. Is anyone familiar with it? NG is the site. I'm not. If anyone is, um, we can invite them to speak, but I don't know that anyone's put their hand up for this question. So if people want to look into inner.world, uh, I guess, .com, I didn't see a .com in the link, um, you can check it out for yourselves, but no, I don't know what Jewel's involvement is. Uh, Jewel, I think, is a, a pop star. Have I got that right? Okay. Well, we'll move to the next question. Sorry, Deborah. Our next question is also from Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., this time from Eric Billings. In terms of prioritizing teaching resources, time and expertise for K-12, what's the order of importance, teaching stress coping mechanisms or generating a comfortable learning place for or the three R's? Well, I'll start with Georgia there. Yeah, I don't think that it actually matters in which order as long as you're actually dealing with it. I think that there's a lot of different techniques that you can be able to use depending on your comfort level and what are the resources that you have available to you. I know a lot of teachers that work on, you know, one is like, you know, de-stressing activity of maybe breathing for a few moments before the class starts. And I would if, if I had like just the basic simple things that you could implement in almost any classroom, it would be doing something of kind of burning off anxiety. A lot of people have the students kind of like stand up or move around for a little bit to kind of get rid of all of it. And then after to be able to do a relaxation exercise, which could be very, there's so many different ones, depending on what you're dealing for. Some people, it might be doing some basic math problems for others. It might be doing breathing techniques. I do I do it through games such as like the focusing game where everyone tries to stay still completely like a statue. And I try to make noises to make them move, which is kind of fun and learns, especially for the students that more are on the ADHD scale to be able to deal with body control and also mind control at the same time. And so implementing something that is easy in your classroom is not disruptive so that you can be able to teach, I find can be really beneficial. And it's something that every teacher could do if they feel comfortable with that, but you want something that you enjoy and that you find a benefit to your students, but then they learn better and they're a little bit better behaved. And they also learn a skill that is really valuable for when they're adults. Erin? So looking at the question, if I had to rank it, I mean, if I had to rank it, I would say generating a comfortable learning place would be top priority for me, followed by the stress and coping mechanisms, followed by the three R's. Because if you start off with making relationships with your students, making your room a comfortable place, both physically and emotionally for students to share their fears, share their excitements, share their struggles. Then once they do get to that level of frustration due to academics, they can know that you're a trusted adult to help them with their coping mechanisms and show them what a, a, a positive way to respond to this would be. And if they don't respond positively, still feeling safe enough with you to know that even if I'm a little out of control, they're going to keep me safe, both physically and emotionally. Because if students feel comfortable with their teacher, with their educator, and feel comfortable in the space they're in to make a mistake, then they're going to learn more with the reading, the writing, and the math. They'll feel that they're it is okay to make a mistake, and it doesn't have to be perfect, and 
we always talk about on this program, you know, we want kids to fail forward, to make that mistake and then learn from it. But if they don't feel comfortable and they don't know a way to cope with that frustration, they're not going to even try. And if they don't try to take those academic risks, then they're never going to push themselves beyond what they already know to maybe learn something new that could help them further on down the line. I am just reminded now of a a second grade teacher who started our classes with playing a, a marching song on a record player and having us march around our desks in different patterns. She would just direct us as we went. And we'd do this for about, well, as long as the song lasted, three or four minutes, creating a very comfortable environment and putting all that energy out that we brought to class and putting us comfortably in our seats before we started. And I'd totally forgotten about that until we started this little question here, that that creating a comfortable working environment just was terrific for me uh, that year. Uh, not so much later in high school, though. Okay, next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, many companies and public health departments are embracing app-based stress management tools like the Calm app. Do you think apps like that can be useful or are they an excuse to not adequately fund and equip human support services appropriately? Let's go to Georgia. She's got that smirk on her face, I can tell. Yeah, it's a great question. (laughs) It's a really wonderful question. Um, I think that apps are like any other tool. If it works for you and you find it beneficial, I think that that's great and go ahead and use it. But for for most cases, the, the issues that I have with some apps is that they're not to the person. They're a basic way of kind of looking at it, but it's not specific to what is your anxiety. So if you find that that's helpful, a lot of there's some really cute apps that are like little trees that grow as you're breathing so that you're tracking it. And that's fun for people. And it kind of gamifies practicing being calm. Then I think that that's wonderful. But I think that apps are not good for everyone. And I think that for people, especially if they're trying to spend time away from technology, it could be detrimental. So I would say more as a case-by-case basis. I think that some of them are really, really wonderful, especially to learn the skills of journaling or how to breathe properly or how you feel about different emotions. They can make that a a really good learning tool, especially if it's not being taught. Um, But I think that an application, it is not as effective as you would see because when you are anxious, you want to kind of read your body. And so the, I don't want the app to tell me that I should breathe. I want you to know the Apple Watch does do that on it for you, which you've probably discussed many times. But even that, I want my people to know when they feel anxious within themselves. I don't want an app to tell them because then something else outside of them is saying you're anxious. I want you to know and to be able to read your body of how you deal with different things. And what are the areas that you feel anxiety in? Is it disappointing people? Is it fear of failure? Is it abandonment? Is it fear of judgment? Is it perfectionism? Is it your negative self-talk? And so for that, apps are not as effective and I want people to be able to gain that skill. And so that's the piece that I think that apps can take away. Mm-hmm. Aaron? So I've, I've used the Calm app. I've used the Headspace app, even with my students. But one that I found back in December that I've been using that I really enjoy is the Finch app, F-I-N-C-H. And it is this adorable little chick that you name and you set up habits for yourself. Some of these habits might be um, that they throw you a journaling prompt. What's something that made you happy today? What's something that frustrated you today? Um, 
You can also throw goals on there, like remind me to drink water, remind me to reach out to my friend, remind me to do a quick journal entry of why I'm grateful for a certain person in my life. And you can do all different types of goals. You can write your own or you can use the ones that they give you, but it helps the little chick grow. So like Georgia, you said the gamification of it, you're you're letting the little chick grow and seeing that I'm a, I love ducks and chicks and everything it was right in my wheelhouse. So I feel like, yes, the human support is sometimes missing in apps like Common Headspace, but ones that tell you or remind you, hey, maybe you should reach out to a friend today, set up a game night, things like Mm -hmm. that. Those types of apps I think are pretty helpful. We'll move to our next question because they're still lined up here and we're running out of time. Our next question is from Hershey Trivedi here on the uh, panel, as well as from Daytona Beach. He asks, is anxiety a disability or an ability? Right to you, Georgia. So for that answer, it depends on how you use it and what its levels are. I think that when we use the word anxiety, we often have negative connotations to it, but it can actually be a huge benefit if, as we spoke about in sports, or if you're about to give a performance, or if there's a tiger coming at you, you want to let your anxiety kind of do its thing. And when it's a disability, it's when it starts taking over your world, or you can no longer feel happiness, or you notice that your anxiety doesn't go down. And then that would be something where it is no longer being adaptive, but maladaptive to your own well-being and your life success. So you want to monitor the way in which you use anxiety because it's a tool and it's giving you information that you, no matter if it's adaptive or non-adaptive, you do want to pay attention to why is it being activated and what is it telling me? Why am I feeling this? And that is a huge cue. So even if it is not adaptive, its information is still important because remember, it's not there to torture you. It is there to keep you safe and keep you alive. Sometimes it's triggered for something that you don't need to have, but it's still giving you information of perhaps your past or why it is there or something that's harmed you that it doesn't want to have harm you again in the future. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Terry Walhus in Austin, Texas. What are the degrees of anxiety? I wasn't aware there were any, but um, is that a thing, Georgia? Well, I actually use a 10-point scale for, for my clients to be able to describe their anxiety. And so I have a personal scale of where is your anxiety? And I kind of go through it that like if we go through a 10-point scale, 10 being panic attack and one being zen-like you know, serenity, I would put down that two or three is you have just different thoughts that go through your head. And that's usually where most people are when they're feeling pretty calm and relaxed. And a four and a five would be when you start to feel a little, hmm, things aren't really, you know, there's, there's, some emotional feelings that I might be feeling emotionally or more cognitively. And then a six to a seven would be when these feelings are bubbling up and I'm no longer able to kind of calm them down. This is that anxiety stage where it's not a pleasant emotion and your thoughts usually start to spin a little bit quicker. And again, everyone deals with anxiety different. So this may not be exactly the same for you. And then an eight to a nine is when it's already kind of bubbled over and it's pre having an anxiety attack or a panic attack. And that's when you are at a higher level than you can control. And that's when the brain starts to actually shut off the cognitive part, the part that can do math and, you know, oral presentations. And that's when it's kind of taking over from that. And 10 would be having a full-blown anxiety or panic attack where Mm -hmm. 
your body's going through fight or flight. It's not dangerous for you. It's going to last between 15 and 30 minutes until you've kind of burned through that as a system. And so if you can scale it and you can make your own scale, then that's kind of important for you to be able to know how often this happens for tracking if you're going to see your doctor and your therapist and to be able to self-monitor what are the things that cause me, you know, um, a lot of anxiety. And I would say that what you should track are the things that cause you to go from zero to 10 in a heartbeat. Those are the things that are your personal triggers. And the faster that they happen, that means that the closer they are to a wound or something that has hurt or harmed you, and you should take note of them either in your head, but I usually say, like our brains are like a steel sieve. We think that it's all going to be there, but it usually isn't. But to note it down in something so that you can learn about that later. And if you want to learn about it and cope with it and deal with it, then you have it there for when you want to. I kind of promised uh, Georgia that we wouldn't do therapy on the show. So I'm uh, going to go to the next question here. There's one or two left just for the uh, close of the show. Our next question is from Harshid Trivedi again from Daytona Beach, Florida. Have you had experiences with anybody going through sight loss and the anxiety that it might activate from this process of life? Go ahead, Georgia. I have. Um, Any time that our body is not doing what we hope to um, or is it reacting in a way that we can't control, it can cause a lot of anxiety. Um, And because our world is a lot of interaction through what we see, even now with social media and a lot of, you know, our life is through being able to read and look at things, it can cause a lot of anxiety. And I would say that this would go over to many different areas, not just sight loss, people that lose the sense of smell or how to touch, people that go through um, abouts of any kind of health-related illness that they did not expect or they can't be able to control can cause massive a lot, a lot, lots of control of anxiety because control is one of the things that we worry about, that loss of control, the unknown. How are we going to be able to handle it? What do you do for that is you would want to be able to go through your management system of what are you going to do? What can you expect to be able to educate yourself with other people that have gone through this and what are their management techniques so that it's no longer an unknown variable because unknown variables cause anxiety to making it known variables and to have a battle plan of what are you going to do? Even for people going into the largest anxieties are the ones that are closest to the risk of danger to ourselves. And so what you want to do is to be able to make it as many known variables as you can talk to people that make you feel safe and comfortable and be able to educate yourself on why, what, and what you can do about it. And our last question from our last question comes from John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada. How do you think AI will help or harm students in the future? Our AI expert here is John Snyder, so I'm going to let him I don't know about expert, but I think uh, what's very likely is we'll start having artificial intelligent bots become frontline clinicians of various sorts, including mental health coaches. And I think that as long as they can recognize when they're outside of their depth and recommend appropriate resources, it can be a really healthy thing that can bring a lot of mental health resources to the masses. Thanks, John. Thank you, Georgia. It's been a pleasure to hear from you today. And we got to have you back every once in a while to keep us all calm. 
Uh, big thank you also to all the people who participated today and gave us the questions. I really liked the variety of questions we had, and that was fun to answer. It also generated a whole lot of discussion here. You're the community that make Education Hour possible. So we would also like to acknowledge all the committed people who volunteer every day to operate office hours and after hours for all of us. I'd like to thank today's panelists for providing valuable insight into today's discussion. There's always people in after hours all day and all night ready to lend a hand and any kind of issues you might have with production or audio or media. After hours can get you a quick answer most of the time and nearly any technical question you might have. Thanks again for being here. We'll see you again next Saturday. We're uh, still audio under the credits. This is when we get to thank everybody for being here and saying great things. Wonderful to meet Georgia. Thank you so much, Georgia. Please come on back anytime. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you, everyone. And it was so yeah, you don't have to be invited glad we got your laughter on, on, on air today. Yeah, <laughs> we got our laughter on stage on stage because usually your laughter gets me on Twitter whenever you show up on Twitch show. So That's thank right. you for laughing. She and uh, Doctor have infectious. That special energy. Um, yeah, Georgia, you don't have to be invited. If you ever want to be here just to participate, you're thank welcome you. to get up at nine and uh, ignore your kids for two hours.